Welcome to the Limitless Energy Podcast. We're here in San Diego, California for the IEEE conference uh, on grid edge technologies. And uh, I'm here with Mark Spieler. Yes. Uh, Global Head of Energy at NVIDIA. Correct. Welcome to the podcast. I love NVIDIA. It's a great company. Um, and the Grid Edge Conference is, is it's a unique conference because now we're talking about basically distributed storage, distributed smart grid. NVIDIA obviously is going to play a large part of that. Um, maybe we can talk about, first of all, NVIDIA as a company and then how you think it's going to play into the Grid Edge. Sure. Thank you for having me. First of all, it's great to be here. Um, Really excited about being at this conference. My my father and brother are both engineers. I'm not the engineer in the family, but I think I'm the first one presenting at an engineering conference. You so, sound like an engineer. Right? I, I, I play one on TV. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I've been with NVIDIA for about three and a half years. Um, my background has always been at the uh, intersection of energy and technology, primarily in oil and gas. But when I came to NVIDIA, the goal was how do we grow our energy footprint? How do we grow the work that we're doing across energy? At what point was NVIDIA interested in energy? Because you think of it as a, gra as a GPU company, a graphical uh, sure. card company. So NVIDIA is, is an accelerated computing platform company. Mm -hmm. uh, started in the early 90s. Uh, our founder and CEO is still at the helm, Jensen. Um, and basically what we evolved from was a company that made really good graphics cards to a company who has built software stacks to take advantage of the cores on a graphics card to do all kinds of math problems, not just graphics related, but also scientific computing and now AI. And so when you think about a GPU, most people aren't familiar with it. They think about CPUs, right? Intel, AMD, and those folks, they're very serial in nature. And although they have multiple cores now, they can run a few things in parallel. We have over 10,000 cores, I think over 13,000 cores on our biggest GPUs. So 10,000 parallel computations That's on right. a single GPU. That's right. And so when it comes to changing the colors of a pixel or shading a pixel, that's what allows you to get the real time visual aspects that reflect real life simulation. And so then, the whole point was to actually in, in very rapid, uh, real-time changing changing pixels to be able to uh, emulate real life in a gaming situation. It was really gaming that it started, right? A absolutely. And, and when you think about a video game versus a video, you watch TV, it's all pre-recorded. Mm -hmm. You know what the color of the next pixel is going to be. But when you're in a video game, you don't know if you're going to look up and see blue or look down and see green or what color, what shading, what reflection of light needs to be created. It's all math equations as you move through the video game. So it's got to be able to compute that in real time and tell the pixel what is the next look. So that's that interesting. It's if, if it's not following real physical equations, the human eye and brain can detect this doesn't look real. Yeah, so like it's, absolutely. It, it knows what physics should look like. That's and right. so that's, you know, that's fascinating. So, so the, 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 the point of having all of these parallel processors on a single unit is to be able to do very rapid physical computations, initially to be able to trick the human brain into th thinking this is real or I, recognizing it as, as potentially real. Perhaps. I, I, I don't know what, what the thought process it, was back then, right. but, but it definitely does that. And, and it basically, it solves these math problems. And, and then in the early 2000s, we started figure, 
figuring out with, with support from the, the research community and the university community that you can actually use these 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 cores to do other math problems, mm -hmm. right? Computational science. To do actual physics problems. Physics problems, chemistry problems, math problems, all kinds of stuff. And so we started scaling out. We wrote CUDA, which is our yep. uh, development platform. And one of the biggest industries that took off after that was the energy industry with seismic processing. How do we take the um, seismic shots that are looked at to understand what's underneath the earth so that you can explore for oil and gas or hydrocarbons? And there's a ton of algorithms, but it's highly parallelized, and then you can pull it all back together into a single image. And so we were able to get tremendous speed ups, 5, 10, 15x performance increases be able to do what took months down to weeks and uh, we've continued to evolve that into a lot of different industries and now we've taken that technology and moved it out to the edge as well as doing a lot of ai right because you can run a whole bunch of ai in parallel right as you're ingesting data and training ai models all of that stuff can be done in parallel mm -hmm. looking at images looking at videos looking at words. I have fond memories of Kudo. You know, yeah. in, my, in my days as a professor, I had a project where we were using it and GPUs to solve fluid mechanics <coughs> equations. Sure, sure. And uh, we were looking at turbulence and flow of the motion of particles in, in turbulent flows. Okay. Very, very complicated stuff. But you could, you could get stuff in a, you can get results very rapidly on these platforms compared to what we used to be able to do in a supercomputer. Correct. So today, a majority of the top 500 supercomputers in the world all use GPU technology, right? right. right? And it's just because the, the scale and the capacity to compute on that many more cores and the energy efficiency, right? In a world where we're trying to um, basically cap the energy that is used for computing and other things just due to the capacity to develop it, move it, and all of that. If you can reduce the energy needs by 10x by using GPU computing versus CPU computing, because you're able to do so much more in a smaller energy footprint, um, the individual GPU may use more power than the CPU, but if you need 30 servers of CPU to do what you do with one server of GPU, you're obviously saving a ton of electricity. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, you have to, I guess you have to modify the code. It's very different code that runs on GPU than <clears throat> even the algorithms because everything has to be highly parallelized and everything is done at the same time. It's changed a lot. It sounds like maybe you haven't developed on CUDA for a while, but I tell you, a lot of the CUDA I, I haven't. development <laughs> has all been lifted up. We've, we've been investing in software uh, architecture and infrastructure for, for many years. and. Yes, you need to be very efficient as a computer scientist to developing CUDA. What we find, though, is, is we've created a bunch of extraction layers that basically create APIs and other SDKs on top of that so that most people now can develop, take advantage of the GPU infrastructure without having to go into CUDA development. Mm -hmm. And we've just released what's called NVIDIA AI Enterprise, which is a full stack of software tools based on uh, both open codes from NVIDIA, but also open source codes that basically can leverage GPUs without significant changes in coding. So that's pretty much explains why NVIDIA is a 
$650 billion market cap company. You've got the hardware, you've got the software on top of that. You're developing both. Um, and I think it makes sense then when you talk about energy and the electric grid and how it's going to get more and more complicated and more and more smart, this is the type of platform that is required to make it work. I think so. I, I think the, the best way to put it is the complexity of the grid is, is increasing at, a, at an exponential rate that will increase as laws and regulations and all of that change. Today we're at, I don't know, 1% EVs. The goal, I think, in the U.S., we've heard recently is, what, 50% EVs by 2030? That, that's gonna, that is a compelling event in this industry that we've never seen before. And in order to accommodate that, we have two, two ways of solving that. Run a bunch more lines or redirect electrons in a more efficient manner. Right. And I, I use ways as an example, right? You know, if, if you want to go somewhere and there's traffic, you can either build wider roads or more roads, or you can redirect traffic or tell people to come at a different time or whatever. It's the same logic there is as people are trying to use more electricity, can we redirect those electrons from other people in the grid who might have spare capacity through solar, EVs, battery walls? And can we um, encourage people to do uh, less, to use less given uh, the constraints and use what I hear from regulators a lot, uh, carrots and sticks to basically encourage that, but do it in a more real-time fashion so that you don't um, overburden the grid and cause failures, right? Right, and on top of that, if, if you're talking about electrifying, you know, 50%, 30%, whatever it is, of yeah. transportation, that all comes from the grid now. And even if you are going to um, optimize the flow so to make it more reliable, you're gonna need more production. And it's, we maintain, we prefer to see more of that production to be renewable. Yeah. And so not only now is it a more stressed grid, but you have, more of your production being intermittent. And so that means more batteries. And that means more batteries centralized, more batteries on the edge, more batteries yeah. in homes, uh, in, in, in microgrids. So all of that needs some high level control. You're absolutely right. Batteries are gonna play an instrumental part in us accelerating renewables, right? Renewables by, by design or by design are not reliable, right? You can't know that the wind is going to blow you can't know that the sun is going to shine and a cloud's not going to come overhead and and so in order to maximize the reliability of renewables you need an intermediary which is batteries and so the question is is when's the right time to charge when's the right time to discharge how do you optimize the life of the battery while optimizing the grid reliability and and in some cases when something happens the resiliency of the grid by leveraging all the power on the batteries to bring the grid back up or to redirect power from somebody who has batteries to somebody who doesn't mm -hmm. and that's where the whole energy equity stance comes in um, and regulators will figure out a way pretty quick how to balance that from for people who don't have the means today to acquire mm -hmm. batteries. As things get more distributed, um, how important do you think it's gonna be that 
we have a lot less tr actual transmission. So there's going to be a, it's going to be more efficient because we've got storage and we've got production at the edge. So there's not as much movement of energy, right? Yeah. So microgrids are, are I guess, the panacea, right? If you can generate electricity and store generate electricity where it's being used, that's mm -hmm. perfect. I don't know if we're quite going to be quite there in the in the short term. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the places where there's a lot of wind and, and space for solar is not the place where a lot of electricity is being consumed. Mm -hmm. So the ability to move that. Now, can you produce enough electricity at a house? Well, my house is tall and thin, so the roof line's not very big. So even if I put solar on it, I've got four kids, my wife and I, we can only produce maybe 40 to 50% of the electricity that we need, right? So even if I put solar panels on the roof and battery storage, I still wouldn't be able to provide all of my electricity. Sure, but if you have storage and production, you could probably at least use the storage to mitigate the peaks, mitigate the power. So the rate of transmission can be Absolutely. minimized. And that's that ultimately makes it more efficient as well, even if it's not completely self-sustaining. But all this is also software driven. Like you determine where the power comes from. Right. You have so many sources. That's right. No, you're you're absolutely right. And and at some point it will make financial sense for me to do this. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, with solar, right? Or for the utility company to do or it. Or for the, exactly. And I, I think in the short term, what we will see is I'll have EVs, maybe battery walls versus generators and stuff. But the solar for me is, is the payback time is just too long. But I think as we get more and more rollouts, it'll become less expensive. And the payback time, even for the 50% or 60% that I can get, will make a lot of sense, right? Um, but, but I think that is going to vary by location and everything else. But the need for transmission, um, I think until there's enough batteries across the grid and enough local um, generation, we're still going to need transmission. Sure. Right? Yeah. But, but I, I think you're right. I think eventually, if a community can be self-sustaining without having to go outside, um, they would choose to. I don't think you're going to eliminate the centralized production, the centralized storage, the big storage systems, you know. Yeah. But ultimately what we want is just a rock-solid grid. Absolutely. Especially as we come into the, the electrification of transportation and, and, and other things. Maybe even like industrial processes can be electrified as well. That's a lot of activity on the grid. It, it's a lot bigger than I think people can wrap their heads around today. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I, I, most of my career I've spent in oil and gas, and, and they're, they're innovative in oil and gas, for sure, because the, the innovation drives profitability. But they still move pretty slow compared to other rapidly evolving industries like financial services or, or healthcare or telcos or other things. Um, utilities are even slower, right? And, and I think they want to build a very robust grid and they don't want to take a lot of uh, risks in anything that would affect reliability or resilience. Mm -hmm. And I think as they get pushed by the government for more renewables, as well as um, more renewables just come online and EVs and others, we're going to see an 
exponential increase in complexity that only software and AI will be able to balance. Um, Portland General presented this morning, Larry Beckadall, and they are going to have 25% of their electricity they anticipate will come from consumers. Wow. So people with solar, people with battery walls, people with EVs, and scaling up and down their usage in real time and all that stuff. And, you know, how do you, how do you balance that? How do you go from a world where we had one directional power plants, you know, you need more electricity, it's hot in the summers, more people run an AC, you just turn up the, the gas plant or the coal plant or the nuclear plant to a world where you've got millions of different points of generation or savings that you need to balance now so that you don't overproduce fossil fuel-based electricity when you could have used renewables from three doors down, mm -hmm. right? In real time, you need to make those decisions because to your point, by the time you turn up the gas plant and move it across the transmission line, you might not need it. And then if you don't have the batteries or space in the batteries, then you end up uh, running that to ground. Mm -hmm. So the, the complexity of this bi-directional grid is, is, is going to become very complex as the amount of DERs continue to accelerate at a very rapid pace. So if, if you're not an engineer, what are you? What am I? Um, well, my background is in uh, business development and marketing. Um, and I've been, I worked for Silicon Graphics mm -hmm. after I left uh, working for a university. I always thought I'd go back and teach. I loved- You worked for a university? I did. I worked in the Minnesota State University system. So I was originally from Minnesota. I graduated with a degree in marketing, got a master's in professional development and leadership. Expected I would spend my career doing student development and then realized that there's not a ton of money working in a university setting uh, unless you're a professor or researcher or other areas. And so I decided to, um, I did an uh, internship in college at, at Cray Research and I decided Cray was bought by SGI. So I left the university and I went to go work for SGI, which was eventually bought by HP and is part of HP now. But a lot of the folks that I worked with at SGI ended up in NVIDIA. And I took a turn from SGI covering the oil and gas industry. So they moved me from uh, Minnesota, Texas to cover oil and gas. And then I went to go work for an oil and gas field, oil field service company for 13 years. And I did- In Texas? In Texas, in Houston. Mm -hmm. Which um, company was that? Halliburton. Halliburton. So I worked for Halliburton from 2006 through 2019. Great company. Learned a lot about uh, many areas. I started in their software area doing uh, commercial and strategic alliances and then software development. Eventually moved into customer finance and eventually mergers and acquisitions. And uh, was fantastic. Traveled the world, met with a lot of oil companies trying to understand uh, what what problems they were facing and how, how could we address it from a software perspective and a technology perspective. And then eventually went uh, to NVIDIA in 2019 to run their global energy business and realized very quickly oil and gas companies were becoming energy companies. They were just as much interested in decarbonization and understanding how they were going to generate hydrogen, geothermals, wind, other types of power that were less carbon. But also, how do they do carbon capture and sequestration? How do they... 
how do they produce the oil and gas that will be needed in our lifetime and for many more years as long as we have plastics and coatings and pharmaceuticals and anything that's right that, that stuff doesn't go away even if you're making electricity right, renewables you know it, it's not as as emission right. um, intensive but um so i've shifted from not just an exploration viewpoint but to how do we help oil and gas companies produce the hydrocarbons needed as environmentally friendly so as I, I can understand why you NVIDIA, nvidia hired you for in energy but when did nvidia become and or have an energy division oh 2008 2007 before you know they've used graphics cards for high-end visualization of the subsurface for since early 2000s mm -hmm. right any any video game type capabilities was also done with high-end CAD development and seismic interpretation stuff so on the graphics side we've been there for years it was about 2006 2008 where we started selling our first high-performance computing solutions into oil and gas and then it's evolved into AI digital twins we work with most most energy companies around the world leverage our technology um, somewhere we don't sell anything direct so most people won't find us in their sap environments or that they're using us in azure they're using us in aws in google at the edge from uh, different manufacturers like utilidata or they're buying us through hp dell lenovo depending on what their strategy is our job within my team in the energy vertical is to identify use cases that can benefit from acceleration creating the software and um tool stack to help them be successful and solving those problems where they choose to execute those jobs doesn't really matter to us if they go and execute in the cloud great if you need it at the edge great one of our partners is going to sell them something to execute it once again the silicon is just the vehicle to deliver the outcome and it all comes down to how fast you need that outcome and how much data do you have and that will determine, will a five watt, five watt chip at the edge work? Or do you need a 400 watt, 13,000 core GPU in the data center, right? And you scale accordingly to maximize price performance and energy efficiency. Because really all people want is outcomes. And we, we buy graphics cards, we buy silicon, we buy that for the outcome it produces, not some people think NVIDIA is pretty cool. I guess, yeah, no doubt. I, I mean, I it's, it's, it's ubiquitous. I mean, you guys are seem to be all over the place, um, even in areas we don't hear about. You, you mentioned Tesla as one of your biggest customers as well. I don't know one of your biggest, but you're yeah, they're they're they're, they're yeah. also in, involved in using that sort of computing in there. Yeah, most most large companies today leverage accelerated computing mm -hmm. and when it comes to accelerated computing we've got the software platforms to help them be successful and that's why our isv ecosystem is very big a lot of the big software companies and, and my job is working with energy software companies i've got a peer for manufacturing he works with the manufacturing cfd CAD, all of those isvs got another peer that works with financial services so if you, financial software companies mm -hmm. Other peer with healthcare, right? Medical instruments and genomics and all of that. So we go to market by industry and we hire people from those industries to take our horizontal software stack and figure out how do we apply our capabilities to solve specific problems in those industries. And then we build a business, find a problem, 
solve a problem, build a business. Awesome. Well, um, it all started from gaming. It all started from gaming. Thank you so much, Mark, for being on the podcast. Thank you. It was a great discussion. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Limitless Energy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on any of your favorite podcast platforms.